chapter 2. I don't know if you realize this in the New Testament, but all the T's are together. Uh, Timothy, Titus, Thessalonians, all together. Not in that order. Uh, I do know that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going tonight. And just in case you're joining us mid-series, the Apostle Paul here is writing to a church that he planted in Thessalonica in northern Greece. And in chapter 1, he's talked all about the vital signs of faith that he has seen uh, in the Christians in Thessalonica, saying, we know that you're loved by God. And in chapter 2, as we looked at last week, he's talked about the vital signs of genuine gospel ministry that they have seen in him, saying, you know that we were sent by God. Uh, What we did, we preached the gospel, uh, how we did it uh, with like loving parents uh, proves that. That's what we looked at in verses 1 to 12. Tonight we come to just verses 13 to 16, and these verses are about the Word of God and its effect. And they're often taken by some as being some kind of digression on Paul, but that's not the case. What Paul is doing in chapter 2 is still authenticating his own ministry in order to help the people he is writing to or speaking to back then or even today to be confident in their own faith and what they believe about his teaching. He's saying, you can not only look at what I did to give you confidence in the gospel and in your faith, but you can look at what the word did and is still doing in you. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So before we read, let's pray. Father, your son said, Blessed are those who hear your words and keep it. Give us attentive ears and hearts to take hold of your truth and love your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Amen. This is God's words. Well, uh, if you are taking notes tonight or uh, just trying to grasp what this is all about at the very start, here's the big idea. According to Paul, uh, two things can helpfully authenticate a person's faith and their pastor's preaching. How the Word of God works in them and how the world works against them. And that's basically our outline tonight, those two points. The Word at work within you and the world at work against you. And to help those points stick, because they sound kind of similar, I want you to have two images in mind. The first image is of a tablet, not like the iPad kind, uh, like the medication kind. And the second image, a bully. Let's start with the first one. The word at work within you, verse 13. Now think about a tablet for a second. Think about a paracetamol, medication. 
How does a tablet work? Well, a pharmaceutical company make it for a certain purpose. A doctor prescribes it. A pharmacist dispenses it. Uh, does it work if you just keep it in that little white paper bag that you get? The answer is no. Does the tablet work if you keep it in your hand? My headache is really going away now that I'm holding this paracetamol. Does it work in that way? No, it definitely uh, does not. You actually have to take it. But have you thought for a second about what happens when you take it? The tablet starts to work. It's really obvious. I'm stating the obvious. It's doing what it was made to do. Does it work when you first take it? Yes. Your body actually starts to absorb that medication before the tablet's even plopped into your stomach juices, such as the glory of the esophagus. But here's what I want us to see in this illustration. The word works. The word, I'm getting ahead of myself. The tablet, Liam, the tablet works long after it's been received. Long after it's been ingested, take some paracetamol at 7 o'clock, it's still work, working it on your body at 9 o'clock, hours after it's been ingested. And I want to say that that is how it is with the Word of God, the Bible. That is how God is supernaturally at work in and among His people through His Word, and that's one of the key things that we see in verses thir uh, verse 13 tonight. It's made by God, this word, for a certain purpose. Um, somebody preaches it, somebody proclaims it, passes it on with Christ the prescription for all our spiritual ills. Uh, believers receive it, take it like a tablet, ingest it. In fact, feeding on it is one of the most common ways to describe what God's people ought to do with this word that is given to us. But the Word of God is at work in us, like the medication, beyond the point of ingestion. Actually, long after a sermon is preached, days after a growth group study where the Bible is delved into, hours after personal devotions when the Word is read, God's Word said the Word is supernaturally at work in us, regulating the health of our spiritual lives, fighting off infection of the things that we want to get rid of, empowering us with words to resist sin, making us alive, making us grow. And Paul says the threefold activity of the Word of God and the preachers of God and the people of God should serve as an authenticating sign of both genuine faith among a group of believers like this and genuine ministry from those who lead. Look with me at verse 13. We thank God continually because when you Thessalonians received the word of God, which you heard from us, so it's been proclaimed to them, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now, this is vital, brothers and sisters. This is Paul's great claim for the word that is at work in us. It is no human word. It's not a word about God from human beings. That would be a placebo, pretending to be something that it's not. It's a word from God to human beings. In 2 Timothy 3, we read that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's hard to imagine a 
a metaphor or a description of what God is doing with his word and where that word is sourced than God breathed. Now, certainly, men spoke. God's truth is communicated through people. His truth mediated through the personalities of the biblical authors like Paul and like Isaiah, whom we read from at the start of our service and all the others. But none of these people can claim credit for themselves for what is written. As 2 Peter 1.21 says, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You might want to think of what you read in here as essentially, it is God's word, but if you're looking at this as a letter from Paul to the Thessalonians, in effect, you might consider it like he's just forwarding an email. When you forward an email, you're the one doing the communicating, but you're communicating the words of the original sender, right? It's similar. Now, this is why, okay, because this is God's word, and because God's word through his Holy Spirit, is supernaturally at work by the Holy Spirit, bringing about salvation and bringing about sanctification in us, new birth, an ongoing life in God's. This is why genuine gospel workers will preach the Word of God. This is why the Word of God is actually front and center in the life of our church family, where we'll happily spend 30 or 40 minutes over a sermon, whether it's 2, 3, or 23 verses. Its source and its power make preaching it an absolute no-brainer. Because God is this Word's source, as I've argued. And He is the greatest, wisest, most loving person in all the universe. And He has chosen to communicate Himself primarily, not by sight, but by sound, by His Word. And has chosen to invest Himself incredible, incredibly, as His Word is preached, by taking words that people like me say, and not only impressing them upon your hearts, but applying them. So woe is me if I do not preach this word, if I do not preach this gospel. If I, and if anyone preaches a word to you that's different from what God has delivered, well, Paul speaks in serious terms in Galatians, let him be accursed. And it's because this book is not man-made but God-given that we herald it and we teach it. That's why we walk through books of the Bible as well. We don't want to leave anything out. That's why we walk through a book like First Thessalonians. And this is why it's such an encouragement also, brothers and sisters, week in, week out, to see you, our church family, receive, hear, and accept it as the Word of God. This is not something that we... Uh, take for granted as elders in the life of this church. We, we work hard to feed you, though we can do it better. As Peter Granger himself says, uh, every preacher can become a better preacher. We completely agree with that, especially in the morning. No, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. All preachers, all preachers. Uh, oh, no, all preachers. Let's not have a conversation just now. Let's just, uh, let me get on. Uh, it, it, we can and we work hard to think about it and encourage one another and we appreciate feedback that comes from you. But I wonder if you've ever wondered what you can do to do better at listening. 
about preparing yourself to receive the Word of God, since it is sourced in Him, and since it is going to be at work supernaturally in you, achieving the very likeness of Christ as it gets to work in your heart and your behavior and your friends. Maybe we could adapt Peter's tagline and say every listener can become a better listener. I love Luke 8, 12 to 15, where Jesus tells this parable about the four soils. Some of you will know it. If not, go and read it later. I don't have time to delve into it tonight. But he teaches about this parable about four soils representing four different ways effectively of hearing the word of God. And he wraps up this teaching through the parable by saying, take care how you listen. Take care how you listen. Now, the point of it is that three of the four ways of hearing actually result in the word being taken away, and only one kind results in fruitfulness. So what can we do to become better listeners? Well, actually, Ross McNabb has prepared a very helpful little sheet uh, for some of the young people who sit in our services. And these sheets, as it says in the bulletin, are available on the welcome desk every week. And it's not just for the young people. If folks want to use these sermon notes to help outline the main point, the key people who are in the text, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? After all, every single passage should. Um, anything we don't understand, application, what specifically ought we to do as a result of hearing this message? Those are very useful things. But before you come, why don't you pray? Why don't you take notes? Why don't you not take notes? I'm not setting down any law for anyone. Uh, for some people, actually, taking notes is a bit of a distraction because you're a little bit slow in writing. And once you've finished writing down that point that you wrote down, you've lost the track of the guy, what he was saying, and so on. You're like, oh, and you take five minutes before you catch up. You're desperately wishing that I would get to point two right now uh, so that you can catch up. But that's a wee bit to come. Or we can... I want to encourage you not to let petty things distract you as well. Uh, it's easy. Like the preacher's voice, what the preacher wears, how much gel he's got in his hair, all that kind of stuff. It's all completely unimportant. Spurgeon said, Supposing you went to hear the will of, the one, of, of one of your relatives read, and you were expecting a legacy from him. You would hardly think of criticizing the manner in which the lawyer read the will, but you would be all ears to hear whether anything was left to you. And if so, how much? True, isn't it? How much? That's the way to hear the gospel. So yes, we think about the manner in which this message is communicated. But honestly, if I start picking my nose all the way through this sermon, it matters not a jot if the treasure that's been offered is from this book. I'm not going to. So grab hold of Ross's sheet. Think about it. Pray for us. Pray for our brothers and sisters on a Saturday night or early on a Sunday morning so that we can all gain from what we're doing. Now, that's what the Word of God is, and that's how to receive it. And this is why it's so important. All that background is so important because the word is at work in us. We thank God continually, Paul says, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe, like a tablet, long after you hear it 
God's word is at work in you. And it is the primary means that God is using to sanctify you, to reshape you into the image of his son. That word has proven to be wonderfully effective in the Thessalonians, as we saw from chapter one. They welcomed it with joy, turned to God from idols. They're serving the true and the living God. That's the kind of impact that it has. But Paul is actually pointing out here of all the ways that it is still at work. He's just received this news from Timothy about their progress in the faith. And he's delighted. I always imagine him picking up his pen so quickly and writing this letter, scribbling out of his encouragement. And he is pointing out to them about what the Spirit, what God himself is still doing through his words. And in fact, Paul could have substituted word for Holy Spirit in here, like I suppose in Ephesians 5 or in Colossians 3, the work of the Spirit and the Word are referred to so closely. For it's not just speaking words. It's God's Spirit at work through the preacher and in the listener. I wonder if this is your experience. The Word of God teaches us what's true. It transforms how we live. Have you experienced that? that kind of change, this word at work in your heart, are you different to the person that you were a year ago, a month ago, five years ago? God's word that works in us helps us stop doing some things, start doing other things. Pleasing God becomes something that's important to us. Certainly the grace of God for all of our failures is something we treasure all the times we trip up and with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says we do the things we don't want to do and what we hate we do. Ah, it's frustrating, isn't it? And yet if his word, your hope, secures, as we were singing a few minutes ago, you will trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and love his cross. You will love his substitutionary sacrifice for your sin. That's how this word is at work in us. Enthused, changed by the gospel in a million ways. Maybe that's not your experience, though. Have you wondered why that is? Well, two things are really necessary. You need the spirit-inspired word of God and the spirit-filled people of God. Is one of those missing from your life? Maybe you've got the word of God and you're reading it, well, maybe you're missing the people of God who actually, according to the New Testament, are absolutely vital for helping us to shape one another, help one another change. Or maybe you've got the community, but you don't have the word. You're not reading it for yourself. Well, ask for help. Ask one of your friends. Ask after the service. Anybody you bump into, what do you do for reading your Bible? Oh, I read it with two or three people. Or I read it in a small group on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday night. Or Share these things, encourage one another, and try and help one another. God's word is at work, making us alive, making us like Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing to experience. Now, maybe you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. It's so good to have you here. You're welcome every week. Um, maybe you would like this to be your experience. You'd like your life to be different. You'd like to have some kind of hope that brings you security, that brings you joy and delight, that deals with the guilt and shame that everybody has to deal with in life. 
Maybe you're here because you know somebody who experiences all these things, and you wonder why. You're coming to get a little taste for yourself. Well, this is why. I want you to know that God brings about new life in people, in our city, across the world, through the preaching and teaching of his word. It might surprise you. It surprises me still. But why not let someone read it with you and explain it to you? Uh, maybe you've got questions about the Bible, its reliability, its trustworthiness. That was a big deal for me before I became a Christian. I had to get that settled in my head before I would even let anyone open a Bible with me. Well, there's a brilliant book that's on sale just now at the back. It's three pounds, Can I Really Trust the Bible? by Barry Cooper. It's a fantastic little book which talks about the reliability of the Bible from different perspectives. Have a look. I think there's only three, but we can certainly order more in if they run out. Ask someone. Certainly read this book for yourself. There are Bibles for sale out there. If you want one, just take one. Uh, tell someone. Like, don't just steal it, but take one and uh, we'll pay for it. It's absolutely fine. We would love you to go away with God's word in your hand and just a little hint of instruction as to what you should read as you go away and look at it. Well, according to the Apostle Paul, it's, there are two things, not just one like we've looked at so far, that helpfully authenticate a person's faith, give us confidence in Jesus, and their church's ministry. Um, we've looked at the first, how the Word of God is at work, but let's not forget the second, how the world works against them. And remember I said at the start that the image I want you to have in your mind in this is a bully. Uh, think about bullying for a second. A bully is someone who threatens you and sometimes uses force on you. Uh, they don't just stand in your way, then a barrier would have been a sufficient uh, illustration. Uh, they don't just get in your way, they get in your face. And their aim is to try to overwhelm you with fear and force you to do something that they want you to do. And that's how some people in the world act towards believers. Uh, persecution is the word that we use for it. It happens in this country um, in some ways, mostly subtle, but it's nowhere near as serious as it is in places like Somalia or North Korea, where God's word is banned and God's people seriously suffer. This is what's taking place in Thessalonica, and that's what serves as an authenticating mark for their faith, according to Paul in verse 14. You, brothers and sisters, became imitators, copies, of God's churches in Judea, which is around Jerusalem and so on, the surrounding areas, which are in Christ Jesus. Now, the NIV has a colon there, and the ESV has the word for, both of which tell you that Paul is describing what that imitation looked like. So it's perseverance despite suffering for believing the gospel. And he says, for you suffered from your own people, that is the Greeks, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament ones, and also drove us out. So they are in fact experiencing the same as believers everywhere experience. And the same things that Jesus and the prophets experienced, and yet continuing in their faith. No, that's not even good enough. Rejoicing in their faith, rejoicing in their predicament. And that, says Paul, is a sign of God's word at work in them. To continue in your faith, despite that kind of pressing down and bullying, 
is a sign of God's word at work in you. And by the way, Paul isn't being anti-Semitic when, he, when you read these verses. So he's not anti-Jew here. In fact, you only need to read Romans 9 to see how he wished himself accursed so that the Jews as a race would be saved. So he's not being like that. But what he's doing in verses 15 to 16 is just showing the result of what happens if people actually oppose God's people. They displease God, he says. Now, Jesus could say of the persecution of the pre-converted Paul, who's writing this letter before he became a Christian, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, showing us that the Lord takes hostility towards his people really personally. To assault them is to assault him. And that's seriously displeasing to him. But it's more than that. Look at what Paul says in verses 15b to 16. Their bullying of God's people is seen as an act of hostility, not just toward God. Who is it an act of hostility towards? Everyone. All people everywhere. It's all of humanity. In what way? Well, think about it. What is God's plan for his church? to be carriers of this gospel, the messengers of his message, where? Everywhere. To all people, everywhere. So why does God want his church to proclaim that message everywhere? Because everyone can consider themselves to be a sinner. Under God's righteous judgment, without the forgiveness of Christ, And Christ is their only hope. His blood and his blood alone is what washes away sin. You could say that man is terminally ill with sin and Christ the only cure. So, what then does God think of those who not only stand in the way, but by their harassment, by their bullying, who by their aggression try to stifle the progress of that cure? How does God feel about that? Well, how would you feel? How would you feel if you were on the Carpathia, the first ship that arrived on the scene of the sunken Titanic? How would you feel if you were part of that crew and some members of that crew stopped you from launching a lifeboat? What would you think about those people? Or imagine you had the cure for cancer or for motor neuron disease, or something like that. Imagine some people conspired against you to prevent the cure's production. What would you think of that person? Well, in both scenarios, you'd think that these people utterly hated humanity. Why would they want to withhold such good or prevent the spread of something that would bring so much life? Salvation is an appropriate word, isn't it? Well, this passage shows us that God feels the same way towards those who prevent the spread of the only thing that can save people from their sins. The only thing that can make people right with God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They hate the people he loves. And that's why Paul uses such strong words in verse 16. In this way, he says, that is in their hostile attempts to prevent the spread of this gospel to all people everywhere, They always heap up their sins to the limit. 
the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, we read the words at last and think there's some kind of, yes, he's going to get them. That's how we in our 21st century minds think of these words. But I, I don't think you can read that Paul is rejoicing in the downfall of the persecutors. I think, though, he is glad that such evil will be judged. We all should be. But no, this is his way of saying that the verdict on them has actually already been decided, talking about it in a past tense. So it's not actually that they could not be saved, but by their bullying of God's people, their evil hostility towards all humanity, stopping them from getting the cure. From their greatest ill, they are as far from salvation as anyone can be. That is why he says they've hit the rim they filled up their sins to the limit, just as actually Jesus said the very same thing of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. You always heap your sins to the limit as they reject and spit on the Son of God himself. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you've thought or if you've even heard of persecution of Christians. I doubt very much that you're a bully to them Though perhaps you may have said some unkind things. I did before I became a Christian. I said some unkind things to people who were helping me, trying to help me understand what Christianity was all about. I was attacking the caricature rather than listening. I'm pretty sure you're not violently opposed to Christians, although you should actually be seriously upset about the fact that people are beaten up, tortured, and killed for what they believe in other countries. You should be. But what this passage does for you tonight is show you what happens when people reject the word of God. Because Jesus warns that those who reject his word can be confident of God's wrath, his right judgment against sin. Not, a, not an all-out rage, but his settled, sincere sorrow over your sin and the resolve of a righteous judge to deal with it. Jesus himself said, he who believes in the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, that is the present situation. That's serious. If you're here tonight, you're not a believer. I need you to understand how serious that is. You're, you're, you might think, oh, you're being dramatic. Maybe. But it's true. And it's something that ought to be taken on board. Think about it. That can change for you today. Those words from Jesus actually tell you that. He who believes in the Son has life. So you can turn to God, believe in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as we read about at the start, stood in your place, taking your punishment on himself, pierced for our transgressions, trust crushed for our iniquities. Through his punishment, we're the ones who are saved and go free. Uh, if you'd like to talk to someone about that, talk to me. I'll be at the door after the service. Or I come and pray with some of the folks who are down the front here after the service. They'd be happy to. Or talk to the person who brought you. I'm sure they'd be delighted to talk to you about this. For those of us uh, who are in the faith, brothers and sisters, this this. Is, this is important for us. We should not be surprised by suffering. 
for the Apostle Paul, and the, as he looks on the Thessalonians, it is actually a sign of, the, of the, the word at work within them and their continuing faith. So we're not surprised by suffering or by other people's hostility to the word of God, whether that opposition is subtle or blatant. I mean, some consider it, this gospel utterly pernicious. They think the word that we spread isn't the cure, but a disease, right? That's what they think. Well, Jesus said confidently, this is what will happen until he comes back. But when it does, be in no doubt, you are blessed and you can rejoice. And prove the word at work within you, as Jesus himself said. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. <laughs> so what authenticates a person's faith and a pastor's preaching? How the word of God works in them and how the world works against them. Well, may God give us grace to know more of the first and joyfully endure the second. Let's pray.